Welcome to the Dead Pixel Podcast. This is the podcast home for all the people that work in the archival and production world. The artists and technicians that keep production going long after the shoot is finished. We're engineers, colorists, restorers, administrators, cinematographers, editors, animators, designers, and filmmakers. We work in both sound and visual, in analog and digital. The one thing that we share in common is that we spend some, if not all, of our time working in dark rooms, working alone. Finally, we get to share our stories here on the Dead Pixel Podcast. This is the Dead Pixel Podcast. This is Lee Klein here, and I'm with my co-host, Ryan Hullings. Hey, everybody. And today we are talking with our friend, colleague, esteemed archivist, overall good guy, James Mikowski who is the Zotrope archivist. Man with many hats. Many man with, you do do a lot of things there, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you do? Like, give me like, like the top five things that you do at Zotrope. The top five. Well, we have, the one of the fun things is the museums. We curate the museums up in uh, Geyserville, so we take care of Francis's uh, Hollywood collection, which is the Godfather desk, uh, the Oscars. So those are fun to see. And then uh, for the other one of the wineries, we have like a rare book collection and the Magic Lanterns and Zoetropes. So those are fun. Uh, all the great studios, uh, all the work that we do with them. I think that's fun. And just seeing how everybody does their own thing and, and learning from that. Um, it's never a dull moment, the variety. Uh, working with prints to doing restoration to uh, having hands on just about everything. So I can't say I'm bored. Yeah. So how, how many years now? That's five. Lee. Well, that's that was close four. to five. <laughs> anyway. Four and a half. Taking, out the, <laughs> Taking out the trash too. Taking out the trash is five. Taking out the trash. Yes. How many years have you been working with Francis? Uh, it will be 20. It's 19 years in 2021. Wow. Uh, 20 years, yeah. It'll be 2001 is when I joined Zoetrope. So I start, I came from UCLA, working uh, at the David Packard uh, Stanford Theater Lab with Bob Bob, Bob Gitt. I thought, uh, you know Bob Gitt. Todd Weiner. The obligatory and, uh, Bob Gitt reference. Yeah. Yeah. Todd, yes, I'm glad Todd came. I, I just threw that in for you. <laughs> Todd, you. Todd, Todd is the name. best. I, 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 you know, I want to I do a podcast with Todd, too. He doesn't know it yet, but uh, maybe we'll send him this and he'll find out. No, we, you know, I, I think the idea behind what we're doing is we just, you know, you and I know what each other does and Ryan and I know what each other does, but most of the people listen and watch things without really knowing what goes into it. I think, you know, there's a lot of internet conjecture about uh, how things get made and, you know, how we scan and restore and what we use as references and everything. But at the same time, a lot of those things are just hearsay and not really always accurate. So, you know, maybe we'll set the record straight today on a few things that maybe James has some things he needs to clear up. Some, some, some dirty, some dirty laundry that needs to be, uh, emptied out. Oh yeah. yeah the a total gotcha podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go back to when you started working with Francis, what was the capacity of what you did? Well, at the very beginning, uh, I would say that we were just uh, Fra uh, Francis was just finishing up Apocalypse Now Redux, and that was a very hard. They've never did a restoration uh, at that size, and Apocalypse is huge, so they they had huge problems of understanding what they had in their collection. Uh, everything was scattered from L.A. Uh, 
Pennsylvania Film Vault uh, to Napa. And it took him a long time to understand the assets and put it together for the restoration. After that, they they understood they needed someone to wrangle all that. Uh, they had someone that was part-time that worked over at uh, Catherine Craig, who was phenomenal, but it wasn't her full-time job. Uh, so they they put out a, a feelers. I said, actually sent a letter up uh, when I was working at UCLA saying, hey, I'm an archivist. I lived in the Bay Area. I would love to come up. And it just so happened to be the right time that he says, you know, this this might be good. Come on up. We'll interview you. We're going to do uh, one from the heart and outsiders restoration. And we would really need someone to kind of wrangle the mess of the, the archive and, and, and get that in shape. Mm. So, uh, it was it was that that the very beginning was just trying to catalog and kind of you saw the warehouse. Uh, it was a warehouse. It was a facility that they had closed down a few warehouses in L.A., Mainly after when Zoetrope closed in the 80s, it went to a, a, uh, a warehouse in L.A., in Sun Valley, I think. And they evacuated and pulled everything and stored it in a, in a warehouse in the, in the mountains up in, in Napa. And it stayed there for many years. Uh, but it was, it was dusty, rat-infested. It, it, was, it was awful. It was not a film vault. Uh, and so that was one of my first jobs was to define that space and make it clean and, and, and formalized as, to, as a vault. And get wow. precious stuff out of there and into a proper facility. Baptism by fire. Yeah. That's like a true archivist role there, really just inventorying things. And I think that's that's paying your dues with with a lot of this stuff is really just getting your hands dirty with these things and and um you know the the logistics of archiving and 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 inventorying all those assets. It's, that's a it's not a yeah. fun job, but people who are good at it are good at it, and it's important that those people exist. Yeah, that's it. You know, it's, it's not my story is not unique. Got you look at UCLA and how they founded and how Bob uh, and Eddie Richmond established UCLA, where the studios were just throwing out all cans of nitrate, and they just they said, "Well, we'll just take it." They had no idea where to store it, and so it, it went to Melnitz. You know, it went to uh, uh, the campus at UCLA to store nitrate, and then I think someone got wise. It's like, should we be storing nitrate here near the classrooms and all? And they're like, "Well, why don't we have all this great history? Why don't we do?" Uh, have, a, have a proper storage, and so these these the archives come 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 about about collectors. We were collectors in the very beginning, yeah. and so uh, and that it inspired. So it, things grew from there. It's kind of interesting that it seems this has come up. I think uh, on another one, but it seems to me as someone who's not an archivist that in broad strokes the you know flammability and volatility of nitrate film has a lot to do with people getting their act together and actually forming like proper, you know, vaults to handle the danger of the material. Yeah. yeah, the danger of the material necessitated that anyone who was interested in preserving it had to get pretty serious about preserving it. There was no easy way you can't just like, you know, whatever throw it in the closet. And they also uh, got tired of the smell of acetate just rotting away. So, <laughs> you know, vinegar syndrome is not something no. you can ignore. No, it's really a disgusting smell. And it's it's, it's a sad smell because you know it's, de it's decomposition. Yeah. It's it's the end of it's, something. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty much it may be too late, but money and time and the amount of material you have to work with. So it's 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 hard to make those choices. Yeah. Uh, so were you keeping, was Francis holding on to like his original negatives of all his films or just the one or certain ones or? 
Yeah. Uh, you know, fortunately, as I mentioned, you know, we had Catherine Craig and she had identified the the deliverables, the, the important aspects, uh, uh, assets, the original negatives or the duplicate material, the INs or the, the intermediates. And she stored those properly. So those those had been a level of segregation. But yeah, Francis is one of the rare directors. I don't know how many directors actually own a, uh, his own library of titles. We have a, a, from a conversation, Apocalypse, one from the Hard Outsiders, which we share with Warners. Um, we we have a, f a fair good collection. We're small, but we have some we have some good good stuff in their collection. Yeah, yeah. you do. There's a few good films. A couple of those Godfather films are all right. Well, but that's that's Paramount. I like to say we own that franchise, but no, that's all Paramount. Yeah. But we, we're connected with them, so we have a good relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think because Francis made made movies at all the studios, you actually have to talk to most of them at some point. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is an interesting role. Uh, uh, studios have a different philosophy than ours. I mean, we're kind of a two-man, three-man crew and going up working with studios. So it's an interesting how uh, working together, how we we establish certain things. And when you go to the uh, with Paramount, or like, you know, it generally works, but... They they deal with thousands of titles, uh, so I could stay focused on one. They they have a much bigger collection and have a different focus uh, uh, on their on their collection as as they should. But it's it's just interesting how, you know, we're, we're because we wear many hats. Um, we we could be leaner and meaner in some ways, yeah. <laughs> you know. So <laughs> I'm curious about so f f because you're you're you know you've you're using technology at you know with with remixing sound and. 4K remasters and HDR now. Uh, how much is Francis involved in the technology, and how attuned to it is he, or 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 is that really your job to make sure that that remains current? Uh, I would say Francis has always uh, been on top of new technology. I mean, from the very beginning. I mean, uh, from Apocalypse and editing, uh, one from the heart and developing online editing systems. Uh, so. He's conscious of where things are going. And I say with HDR, I've had to stay up on top of the recent, kind of the recent stuff on the HDR and push that. Uh, I think there's sort of this, I think people get a little bit tired that didn't I transfer that already? Didn't I do that already 10 years ago? And I, it's, so it, it is a bit of justifying why I'm having to create a new Blu-ray of, of, of things, you know, or why Apocalypse was transferred at 1080i in the early 2000s, and now we had to do a 1080p for the 2011, you know? it's So we had to stay up on that and then kind of show Francis why we need to do that, why there has to be, why we're spending another load of money to move it. But generally... He understands, uh, and the HDR I think has uh, is, is been a fun sort of uh, rediscovery uh, for him or for anyone. you. I think all of us. Yeah. I think uh, you know. I was. I think a lot of people with HDR kind of hesitant at first with it. They don't quite understand it, or why should library catalogs be in HDR? Should it make sense? These are good to, good things to discuss. Um, you know, but generally, we've had very good, positive results. It pushes things. I don't say we we never. And I, I know a lot of studios are on the same mind. Is it's HDR is a tool. You could go crazy with it. Colorists love to to, to, to push things. Yeah, but uh, I, everybody's been very respectful of pushing it where it makes sense. 
and, and I think Francis is in that mind too. He he he's, he's he dips his toes in things. I think that's he's been burned in the past. This is just a general philosophy. He's been on the cutting edge, and, and either you win or you lose, but you either win big or lose big. Um, but uh, generally with HDR, we've been very pleasant, but we've never really pushed it uh, to any extreme. I think it's been always very faithful to either a, a DP and Francis's uh, aesthetic. Yeah. And it's, and it's nice to have Francis there. I, I, I am fortunate yeah. that I have the artist yeah. or I have the DP right. on oh, hand. Definitely. And a lot of studios don't have that. Right. So um, I at least have their blessing. Yeah. I, I thought when I, the HDR thing about older filmmakers is interesting because uh, they often seem resistant to it because it's to them, it just looks like a too bright and contrasting picture. Uh, and and I think that was because of what people were doing in the beginning with it, which was, yeah, look at what we can do, turn it up to 11. Uh, yeah. I learned something really interesting from Steven Soderbergh when we had worked on Sex, Lies, and Videotape, where we had done a pass in standard, standard dynamic range, and uh, he said, I want to do an HDR pass. And, you know, I said to my colleague Giles, I was like, I don't, you know, there's not, there's not much... HDR stuff in yeah. it's all in like a dark room yeah. most of the time. Yeah. So, um, but Stephen wanted to do it, and you know, if you've ever done anything with him, you you, you would know that he is fast. He's he's very efficient with his time, and he came in the room, arrives right on time, maybe even early, comes in the room, and and he'll say, "Well, I I remember saying I don't know what we're going to do here in HDR." He goes, "Well, we'll we'll know," and we would go, and then he'd say, "Right there, bump up that light." bumped it up a little bit. It goes, perfect. Next, move on. I mean, it was like, you know, he knew exactly what to do with the it's technology. Surgical precision. Yes. And, and even though there was no plan for this HDR pass, he wanted to do it knowing like, I don't want to do this again in in another 10 years if, you know, now there's 8K or 12K or HDR plus or whatever there is, you know, that will make it another version that's needed. I think some filmmakers are getting tired of I we think there is a, a tiresomeness of, of, of what, we're, what we've done because they've gone through, Francis has done 40, 50 years of remastering and watching these things over and over again. And it's like, where's the end here? But I, I kind of feel that we're hitting a point where we're slowing down, don't you think? I mean, after the 4K, I don't know where, or in HDR, I don't really know if there's going to be a big leap. Um, what about 8K for the Japanese? I mean, like, is that, I mean... Yeah. I, uh, but it's a really hard case. I think we've seen examples uh, of, you know, I th we're, we're down at uh, the EMEA uh, real thing, but it was last year or whenever, whenever we were back in L.A., uh, showing why scanner technology shouldn't plateau. But I think it's a very hard case, 10K, 8K, 10K, of the amount of detail that no one ever saw Agreed. before and... and to what end? Yeah, we the amount of technology that we have to invest, the retool allows that we'll have to pay to to have systems that can play that back. Uh, for for what re result? I don't think what for thirty five millimeter, it's it's not. I think it's unimportant because there's only maybe five k worth of stuff in that negative anyway. Where where to me there would be a need for it would be if something was shot uh, sixty five millimeter or some sort yeah. of large format when then, understood then yeah. there's there's logical stuff on it. One one of the the, the other things I noticed about Francis is he's uh, very keen on sound and I feel like that's one thing he's always pushed you toward making a better soundtrack whenever it's possible and bringing it up to current standards. Uh, yep. Apocalypse now. I think the last version especially was one where you guys really 
you really nailed it with what you can do. And explain a little bit about that and, and what, what you did for that. Well, the fun thing about the last release uh, was the low frequency that we did. Uh, we worked with a company called Meyer Sound who actually worked with Francis and Ray Dolby back in the late 70s. And, and there was no real good method in the late 70s to present the six track other than 70 millimeter mm -hmm. uh so but there was no speaker appropriate speaker so uh myers had developed speakers that they could set up at the various places to to present do the appropriate presentation for apocalypse uh so francis is always even though this is we had troubles even pre presentation now with the low frequency speakers but it was a problem 40 50 years ago when a theater has its system it's really hard to go in there and say hey we did something fun different with the sound can we bring in speakers and drives? I'm like no you know this is <laughs> not what we do we already have um we just retooled uh to to stereo five years <laughs> you know six years ago and so why would we want to do six track now um but apocalypse showed a theater audience you know you know, 70, doing six track, there's viable. Uh, and it helped push doing 5-1 presentations in theaters later, later on. So 40 years later with Apocalypse and the low frequency, we, there was, Myers came to us and said, you know what, we remember the print master back then. We remember, remember the, lo uh, the low frequency that was recorded on uh, the original soundtracks that no one has heard. The rumbles of the helicopters, the explosions, all, all that can be pushed uh, further and, and, and bring that out. That was part of the original recording, but because of the limitation of the speakers at that time, you weren't able to experience it. Uh, so Francis was like, yeah, I always wanted at the napalm explosions um, arc light where everybody's on the boat on the deck and they're sunbathing mm -hmm. and you heard, you, you felt something. You felt your arm, your hair on your arm just stood up before you felt the impact of the arc light explosions. And Francis says, that moment should scare the fuck out of you. It, it should be something like nature, you know, you, you know, animals in nature senses something. They sense these low frequencies and, and they get the before we do and they just take off running. And he said, that's the experience of an audience that I want. I want that impact. And so that's what Francis, uh, wanted back then he said well it wouldn't be fun we could try to to do that now it, we did it but it's like i said in a presentation you know it was really hard to convince theaters we were able to do a very expensive one shot to do this um but if people wanted to experience it we did offer a low frequency on the home video release because there are systems out there that uh certain people who discovered this actually in home theaters that their subwoofers are so powerful, they can go down to a low frequency and experience those low frequencies. So if you had a really good system at home, you, you, could, you could do this. How low is low? Is it, we're talking like 10 or 20 hertz? It's 12. Yeah. It's 12? It goes down to, yeah. That's awesome. It, it, it's awesome. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, I don't know, Lee, you were, we were at the- Yeah, Ryan was there too. The New York the, presentation. Yeah, the one at the Dolby Theater. Yeah, that was amazing. Uh, it was it was rattling the the theater, you know. But you know, those are the kind of fun things that you you could see that 
we we had the ability. It was locked in the soundtrack. That 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 material wasn't new, newly created. It was just enhanced. It was always part of the original ele- element. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, that's really cool. That's an interesting, I think, philosophical or ethical question when it comes to restoration. You know, is like uh, this came up again on another podcast, but that you know, recording technology is always better than the technology in theaters to reproduce those recordings. You know, yeah. and how much do you? bring out of the recording versus trying to emulate what the experience is in a theater the day the film is released, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's, it's always, a, you're going down a rabbit hole in a lot of those things because a lot of people get caught up. It's like, well, it didn't sound like that in, in, in 1974. And I, I right. understand that. I, I never discount. We always, uh, Walter Murch, uh, mixed a mono track. He had the ability to do stereo, but he said at that time, theaters weren't converted to, to stereo. So he wanted to make sure that whatever he mixed to the largest audience heard what he mixed. And mono at that time was was decided. So uh, I always release. Any release we have, I make sure that that original mono track is there. And I think that's, a, that's your baseline. And whatever you offer later... That's fine. I think you you're allowed to to have flavors as long as we show and have ability to present what was originally intended to. But like I said, it was going down a rabbit hole. It's like I don't have those original speakers that they heard it uh, right. in the in the theaters at that time. Um, so people never people today will never really hear what it originally sounded like. I, I think this is always good, too, uh, and color. People have, I remember seeing what the film looked like in 1974, the Technicolor, but this doesn't look like. I, I don't think really people have, I think they like to think that they do, have a memory uh, of color. Right? <laughs> I, I, well, I will say, some some people who say that actually are pretty good at it. I remember John Bailey always telling me about uh, uh, the Red Circle and that the beginning of it, I'm sorry, Le Samurai, the beginning of it uh, was the wrong color. And, you know, I was like, ah, you know, John, come on. But he finally said, oh, you're really releasing it? Please fix the beginning. So I went back and looked at it again and his notes about it, like being too bright, he's supposed to be in a dark room, the overhead lights on there. He was right. And I thought, oh, God, I've been such a dick. I mean, I should never have just thought John didn't know because I, you know, you assume that people don't well, remember, but they do. Some people yes, do. I, I think it's different when you're, you're a DP who sits and lives right. and breathes that because they've seen it over 40 right. years and they've been in a color bay and they've had the discussion for 40 years uh, on that color. Uh, it's just hard with the internet. Yeah. <laughs> you can hear fighting people who have this memory. Um, and I, I'd say that I question even previous transfers of stuff that we did. We said we put our official stamp on it. Uh, and you look at how even that color has shifted yeah. uh, to, to, to today. So I, I, our reference points uh, of, of color does change. It migrates over time because technology has changed. Mm-hmm. And you have um, P3 but, colors now that you didn't have before. Yeah. So I say it's all the good point is having a good... 35 millimeter color reference to be your gold standard. If you can have that uh, or a filmmaker yeah. that's, you know, uh, Wes Anderson is a really interesting one too because uh, his his memory of color is amazing. He he was telling us to match an original transfer of Royal Tannenbaums when we went to do the the upgrade, the 4K or 2K, I can't remember what it was, but uh, 
And he said, use it. And I looked at the other one. They're so saturated. This can't be right. You know, like, so I, we graded it and we kind of backed off a little bit. And he said, mm, it doesn't look like the original. And, you know, we said, well, yeah. yeah, it's like, you know, it's more, the colors are more like in line with what they probably should be and stuff like that. And he didn't ask to see the original, but he said, try doing this, try doing that. And we did it. And then I put up the original. It's exactly the same. Yeah, spot on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was 15 years later. Yeah. But, you know, oh. a filmmaker that works with their film in editing over and over, sometimes they do have a really, you know. I, I, I will get that. That, of course, is is the trust is there. Uh, whatever they say, I, 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 I give that more inclination than what I read sometimes on the Internet, yeah. you know. Um, but I mean, I, I, but we have this battle even on sound. Uh, I don't know how color I'm sure there's scientists who memory of color. And this sound, uh, I, I, you know, we'll get all our mixers in, and no one will agree on a sound, or they'll say, that's not how it quite sounded then. Um, but it comes down to 40 years, the ear changes too. You know, yeah. you hear different things. High frequencies don't play very well. So that's, it's hard, and also that's a hard discussion to have with anyone, that you're not hearing the same thing as you, you did 40 years I think our ago. expectations also change for, you know, what we expect good sound to be. The idea of something with high fidelity, you know, is constantly changing. And sometimes for the worse with like MP3s and that kind of thing, you know, where people, I've read stories about studies with college kids that actually prefer the sound of an MP3 to that of like a, you know, WAV file or CD file or whatever, that kind of thing. Something uncompressed, so like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's totally compressed audio versus uncompressed. And it, it, I think it's Did you say you, they preferred that? Yeah, it was wild. It was basically well, that, you know, on a blind, double blind kind of thing, they often prefer. I mean, it's the, the same thing. Of, it's like, I preferred when it was silent. Yeah. Uh, and now all these people are talking. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What do you mean we're going to have color movies now? I want black and white. Yeah. Yeah. It's distracting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think our expectations of what good sound is change it change you know over time and then especially when you're dealing with something from the 60s i think that's spot on i, I think we i've had battles too uh where the mixer said you know because we did that doesn't mean that's what i wanted to do now and really wanted to go back in there and retool the whole thing i was like mm, yeah. i don't i don't i'm not comfortable with that uh but if it's the original sound mixer and they couldn't do something that they wanted to do that's a whole different conversation than let's try this yeah yeah it it, it is interesting i sometimes we get away with this because it's a new version of the film sure, okay. you know recut and as long as you have the old version part, yeah I think it's fine. Yeah. Uh, but to uh, to go back and redo from the foundation up is is something I it's it's a larger discussion. One, we never budget for that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Right. It's not cheap. No, it's not it's cheap. Not cheap. <laughs> so, um, what? So with Francis, you um, you have a filmmaker who, let's just say, he might like to tinker with his movies a little bit after they're finished and make different versions. Um, that's a very controversial subject as well. And how do you respond to those criticisms that do we need another version of Apocalypse Now and or, or do we need a do we need another version of Godfather 3? Uh Francis is a good tinkerer and what and I know uh when we go into these projects or the restoration I'll budget for doing the main film. But I know 
three, six months, or the end when we are starting the mix, he'll start, hey, hmm, I always wanted to do this. And this is how Apocalypse uh, Final Cut came about. You know, we were about to deliver the film, and he said, you know, I want to change the ending, or I want to... Uh, uh, that went into a detour, <laughs> which eventually went back. Now the the original ending was just fine. Okay, <laughs> but that, that's two months of trying to get all the stuff together and and figuring that out. Uh, but he did make significant changes, and uh, Francis is one that films for him. His films are changeable, changeable or. At, at the time, he, he never thinks it's locked in any one particular cut. He has a lot more to say. He's never one to just be happy when the day it was released. It might have been at that point of time uh, where, you know, Apocalypse Now, he felt he made concessions. He made concessions to UA, and that's what he is the best he could do with the current administration and his team. Uh, and the deadline of trying to get it out, but didn't mean that that's he rested on that. He still felt that there was still more he could do. Redux was interesting. You know what? Twenty years later, he said, "You know, uh, I battled in '79 with the studios. There was a lot of stuff that they just thought was weird. It was not going to play well. Uh, but you know, we're we're a different." group of people now. We're, we're a different audience, different expectations. Maybe people won't think it's so weird. So let's just throw everything in. And, and, and let's just see how people respond to that. So, we got a slim cut. We got, like, everything in the kitchen sink cut, cut, and then final cut after 20 years of that. He said, well, hmm. I still think there's some there's some, there's a happy middle ground between the two. You know, there, I, I, Redux, too long. Uh, let, let's just try to find something in the middle that's just right that made him happy that he could just say, "Yeah, this this is this is better. I can let this rest." And that's generally where he's been as an artist is just trying to find this happy middle ground of, you know, at the beginning where uh, a lot of decisions he wouldn't made he had to do is to compromise to get to get the film film down. But now he has the luxury of as an artist to do that, and I I, I, I respect that. But I, I he never discounts that. That's the definitive version. Uh, it's just his particular... I mean, Ridley Scott with, uh, with Blade Runner, the 45 version, which is the definitive. I mean, they're all viable options, I, I guess, uh, as an artist. It's interesting to see how they, their mind works over the 30 years and how it changes. I mean, it's an interesting exploration. change. And, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, George Lucas changed a couple of his films, too, and people... Not didn't necessarily. Uh, that's like a whole that. other. That's a whole other discussion. <laughs> I, I heard a story. I don't know if it's true, but uh, when Sophia, his daughter, was finished with Lost in Translation, Francis took a crack at editing it himself and made a Francis Ford Coppola cut uh, to show him how he would edit. Show her how he would edit it. Is that? Do you know? Is that true? I don't know specifically if that's true. However, what I'd say is that Francis uh, likes uh, with anything, like even a script or any. I think all filmmakers, uh, people give their notes, and his way, the best way to give notes, uh, is to visually tell that. Uh, and I, I've seen that where he will tinker uh, with with cuts uh, with his family and all, and offer his notes. So. Hmm. You know, scripts, he will read over his scripts and, you know, things. Like, but generally, he'll sit down and, and just say, well, let's just, you know, 
my note here is like maybe we'll move this in here instead of writing on an email, which he'll, he'll do. He'll do just it. say, well, yeah, yeah, we'll just do I it like and that, show actually. you. I would not say that take that as he takes control over that. I wouldn't, uh, no. Right. These are creative notes. One of the things I, I felt, uh, and I don't know if it's true, just from the few times I've worked with Francis, is that he is, um, he's very easy to work with. Like he doesn't, he's not very demanding, but he likes what he likes and he says what he likes. And um, do you feel that he's a good collaborator? Like, do you feel like you're in good hands when you're doing one of these things with him? Working with Francis over the last 20 years, I think we have a good rhythm where I, I know where we can push things, where he won't. I was like, yeah, that's, that's a road we shouldn't go. Uh, generally, he's very, very supportive and very open to discussion. If he doesn't like something, he'll say, yeah, hey, I don't like that. But he'll think about it. He'll sometimes he'll say, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's that's a crazy idea. And I was like, oh, that, that's. And then two weeks later, he'll write, hmm. Maybe we we could try that and see that. So I know he's thinking about it. So I, I, I'm never embarrassed or, or willing to just sh throw out a crazy idea to him and, and have him respond in a negative way. Because I know he may have that knee-jerk reaction, oh, that's a shitty idea, I don't want to try that. But he'll say, well, maybe there is something there and we can work out. So there's a good collaboration. Yeah, that's good. Tell us about the new cut of Godfather 3. What's that? What's that? How'd that happen? I would say the same thing as sort of Apocalypse. I think he's in this era of revisiting things that I guess were perceived as problematic back in the early 90s. And Godfather 3 was for him a sore point, uh, especially with his daughter. Uh, he always felt uncomfortable on how the reaction was her and uh, felt that there a lot was on him and he wanted to make that right. That was also a time where he got notes uh, that maybe he looked back at it and said, well, I, I, I guess my original feeling on how we started the film might have been better. So let's go back. Let's put the middle back at the very beginning uh, and then rework the ending uh, and, and just get right into the into the story. And I, I generally think that with the recent reaction, I think his, his uh, feelings uh, is correct. Uh, I think he, he's shown that that people have responded to that or have been able to look at it again in a new new light that uh you know unfortunately a lot of these films are one from the heart was in the shadows of apocalypse now it wasn't apocalypse now apocalypse now wasn't godfather so he he always has to ride that it's no always matter a tough what. act to follow with him isn't it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah you know uh godfather three for him god i was looking at uh, the other day uh, some dailies and he was shooting in May of 1990, still shooting in May of 1990. The film was released in Christmas of 1990. <sighs> to be still shooting almost six months before and to finish the film, I mean, that could happen today. I mean, we could finish films digitally. Uh, but that wasn't digital fairly, then. Fairly, it wasn't digital yeah, that's then. The thing. They rushed that. And I think he always felt that, um, that there was more he could do to help it. Uh, and I think if you see what was released in theaters in 1990 quickly changed. Uh, him and Walter went back and, and tinkered a little bit more to do sort of the home video releases, which was basically what everybody has seen for the last 30 years. Uh, but it differed from the theatrical. 
But still, he was during Dracula, and he didn't have his. He was on to the next project. He didn't have his whole attention on how he would have done it. So thirty years later, he said, well, "I, I want to get back to it. I feel that there was more I could do, and I want to spend more time that I wasn't allowed to to have, or because of the circumstances." Mm-hmm. So I see. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing this this new cut. I, I don't totally. really remember the film, but uh, should be good. Tucker is a film that he hasn't ever changed. No, there was one shot he wanted to add where they're making the engine in the home, in the kitchen. Uh, there was a one discussion at the trial where he was like, oh, he's fooling the investors. He, he doesn't have a, a company. His company is in his kitchen uh, and tinkering around, and he, he's, he's exploiting all these people who have missed in his company. Well, he has a shot of actually them working in the, in, in the kitchen and, and doing all that, uh, but that was lost. Uh, a lot of the material... Uh, we are fortunate that Francis kept every film... And everything behind it uh, that he shot, Tucker was one that was George Lucas's, and it turned over to Disney. Mm. And uh, at some point, uh, Lucas discarded uh, a lot of the B negative or the the daily the dailies negative and the B negative uh, material. Oh, so we so were never sad. able to find that shot. Yeah. I, I have it uh, on a crappy U-matic tape. Can you uh, which we offered on the thing. Yeah. yeah yes. <laughs> so, and in some of the cases that worked, I, like in Cotton Club, we only had uh, an answer print of some of the lost stuff when you never could find nine minutes of, of negative. And so what you see in, on Cotton Club Encore is nine minutes of, of answer print. It looks good. Yeah, you I didn't notice You couldn't that. tell. Yeah. And uh, so... But I'm afraid three three quarter inch. There was no magic there. <laughs> that was, that's a tough one with those lines on the bottom and the skewing and the. Is there is there material for the first two Godfathers that has been shot that people have never seen? Does that exist or is that pretty much a cut that's finished? Oh, I you know uh, I think there probably is. It's finished. I don't think Francis is ever in the mind of he's never discussed that. And like one and two is locked for him. Uh, well, how do you how do you make those even better? I, I don't know where you start. They did, at one point, uh, the trilogy. Oh, that when they did the seven hours together or whatever it was, one long thing. Well, that was the 1990s. There was an effort in the late 70s where for television where they stitched together one and two yeah. in chronological order. And he hated that idea. He's like, well, what the hell was the point of two? You know, that took <laughs> my creative choices out of it. And he's like, he basically did that as a favor and allowed Paramount to, to offer that. But he's, since then, has been very reluctant to ever... Uh, discuss that or show that ever again because it's it, it really defeats the point of, of of two and what makes two special so yeah so you've collaborated with his collaborators as well at this point too uh how is walter merch to work with he seems like a lovely guy and so so good at what he does he's pretty good so good uh <laughs> he he is a brilliant man uh, his family is uh, is from his son his daughter uh aggie his wife he it's a it's a fun family to be to be around creatively. Uh, Walter is one of the easiest going people to to work. He, he's always he's a, I always feel intimidated a little bit, but he, he never because he he wants to intimidate or has that availability. He's he's like the smartest guy on the, the room when you do thing, and you know. And I I always feel like when I'm speaking up, I'm saying something dumb, but he never treats you that way. It's um, he. What's brilliant about Walter? 
and working on a couple films. We did Youth Without Youth with him, and we did Tetro. The way he likes to structure his films, he will... It's very analog in some way because he, he, he bridged that gap between the analog world and, and digital and working in Final Cut, coming from editing a film on a moviola or a, a steamback or, or, or whatever. He, he liked to create these big boards and then storyboard every shot. So we had for the entire film, he had created these big, thick cardboard uh, mats and stitched every frame of film on it. So he could see how the film was cutting. So every scene was laid out in the, in that way, uh, and, it, and it was just fun to see how he and analog was bringing this kind of old school way of stitching together these scenes and, and bringing that in a digital way. Um, but you know, his his brilliance is that he has a good understanding of astrophysics or neurology, or he'll like he'll go into you know. <laughs> how your brain works and how the synapses fire. This is kind of how I imagine how this, you know, so it's, it, he brings other crafts, other science into editing. <laughs> you know, you'll see what other people are doing in other uh, fields of study and try to adapt it. And that's just, there's always how, it was brilliant to see how he, his mind works in that. And I think that's why Francis always loved that. Francis is always someone that really respected the inventor. Mm. Tucker. That's why we had Tucker. Mm -hmm. He loved how Tucker could see how other people were creating things and how he could say, I could take that and make a better automobile. And Walter was like that. I could take that and maybe be a better editor. I could tell the story better from what I think. So I, Francis, Francis and Walter br could work brilliantly together in that because Francis respected how Walter's mind yeah. and how he was like, that's exactly how he, he wanted to give that artist the, the ability to, to, to have that lab, that creative ability to... Create, push the envelope yeah. and create something new. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love what he did with the re-editing of Touch of Evil. I think it was such a amazing, amazing piece of filmmaking that he just made better because of what he did and using Orson Welles' notes. And it was pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty great stuff. The Bay Area, and there's just such an amazing amount of talent there uh, that people forget about because we all think everybody's in Hollywood, but you know, Phil Kaufman and, and Walter and, and Francis. And I mean, just, there's a million. We others. had Les Blank too. Les Blank. Les Blank. Yeah, Les Blank. Yeah. Um, it's really great. I just saw Invasion of the Body Snatchers the other day, his Kaufman's one. And, um, it's really scary. And I had forgotten how good it was and how, and then I started thinking about his career and how many good movies he's made as well. Um, but there's just, the, you know, I think being away from Hollywood is really an, uh, yeah, got Carol Ballard. Carol, Carol Ballard, uh, another one yeah. who's uh, who, and I think Zotrope owns one of his films, don't, don't you? Black Stallion. Black Stallion, which right? you restored. I did with yeah. uh, with Caleb yeah, Deschanel, yeah. who uh, is one of the one of the best DPs to work with. He's so easy to work with and so smart. And um, I believe he lives in LA, but um, but he's still he's still good. He's still great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, I think we should do a podcast with him because he's. Uh, I like his approach to digital. Uh, he he understands it. I think he's, you know, he's really thought a lot about HDR, and uh, so I think he would be a good person for us to talk to at some point. So what's next? Uh, now, you, uh, is there any movies left of Francis you have not worked on? Um, no, we got we got we got still some awesome titles. I am helping Paramount right now with, with the Godfather. You know, the fiftieth is coming up. Uh, it's not been released in in 4K, 
so that should be a fun title to look forward to. Uh, Outsiders is going to be a fun one that I want to work uh, with Stuart from Burham. Uh, so Outsiders, we got Conversation. So, so Conversation's never been remastered? No, it hasn't. Now, we were going to release five days before COVID and lockdown in New York City with Forum. Uh, Bruce Goldstein and Adrian Helpern, they were going to, uh, Adrian Helpern uh, was going to uh, release it. And then, uh, then, of course, the lockdown happened. We made two uh, 35-millimeter prints from elements that we restored back in about 2002, 2003. But we did nothing with, with those elements. They just sat. Uh, we did an HD transfer. Uh, so what people see in the Blu-ray... Uh, is is from that restoration, but it was a photochemical restoration. Yeah, probably from an IP uh, to the uh, video master. It it was from an IP, uh, but they really wanted to. Their audience is made very film savvy, and they really wanted to offer uh, thirty five. So we made a deal with them to to release it. So that has yet. We got great publicity five days before, <laughs> so people were looking forward to it. Uh, and I think you know, as everybody did in COVID. Oh, we'll release in summer. Everything will get better. Yeah. And everything was like, oh, we'll do it fall. Yeah. We'll do it, you know, winter. And so it just kept going on and on. I, I, I think we've written off release in 2020 and hopefully conversation sometime next year. Though I, I am very fortunate that Godfather 3, Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, Paramount, we, we made a date in January, February, and he said we would really like to release it this year. And they stuck to it. Hmm. And they're showing it at 190-some screens here in the U.S. I don't know where. Wow. This coming February. <laughs> no, now. Oh. It's out now. It just released December 4th. And th almost 300 screens internationally. And I'm like, that, that's a tough, tough, tough situation because they're dealing with fighting capacity limits and all. So it's not a great market. But they, they stuck to it, and it, it's been doing well. Um I think after this, we come out of this. I, I really hope it, it's going to be hard for theaters. I mean, with the HBO Max, I know people will say, well, they have the same discussion with TV, you know, that it's going to kill television. This is going to be a hard road for them to scrape back an audience after people have been very comfortable at home. Uh, I don't know if the demand's going to be right there. It's going to be a slow road be, yeah. to get back to what it I think it'll get back. Yeah. I mean, I do, because I feel like people are going to want to go and get out of their house again when they feel it's safe. And a movie seems like, at least for me, a movie is exactly what I want to do right now. I want to go to a theater without my phone, without any chance of falling asleep on the couch, and I want to watch a movie. Yeah. yeah, but I've also like been so fundamentally rewired by this that the idea of sitting next to someone scares the hell out of me, even if there's no actual risk. Like Just the idea of sitting next to some stranger yeah. Does not sound at all comfortable. It's going to take, I think, time for me and probably other people to, you know, reconcile. With that. Uh, we get once we get back to uh, hugging each other. I think then we can sit next to each other in theaters. <laughs> yeah, I don't uh, hug any. I don't hug strangers in movie theaters. Oh, you should. It's great. <laughs> I, I, but I got more popcorn if I uh, if I hug my concession guy. <laughs> well, that thing, yeah. that's a known fact. Yeah, if you slip them a twenty-two, it works. Well, James, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, talking to us. This uh, 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 is always a good time. Yeah, and, thanks so much, James. Uh, so thanks, and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you, guys. Take care. <laughs>